This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello and welcome to the programme. Have you had a productive week? I hope so. But I also hope you don't think I mean productive as in making more gadgets to strip the tassels from ears of corn. Yes, there is actually such a thing. Recently I went into one of those $2 shops that seemed to sell just about everything and in amongst a whole lot of other gadgets to eliminate inconvenience from mundane life was this odd-looking thing that ostensibly liberates your corn cob from its tassel. I imagine someone wanting to cook corn one day and being irritated enough with the tassels hanging from the cobs to apply their mind to devising an appropriate stripping device and then trying to sell thousands of them through $2 shops. But this is not the productiveness I'm talking about. Of course, productive in this program means spiritually productive, as in strengthening a beneficial attitude or transforming a negative habit into positive. Not productive in the sense of doing or making something to make life more convenient, especially to make more money. So let me put it this way. I hope that if you were with us last week, you were able to implement some of the advice we were given by Paul Lockie on changing habits. Remember, he pointed out how difficult it is to change old habits, quoting James Clear with this. The reason why it's so hard to stick to new habits is that we often try to achieve a performance or appearance-based goal without changing our identity. Most of the time, we try to achieve results before proving to ourselves that we have the identity of the type of person we want to become. It should be the other way around. We were told that before embarking on habit changes, we have to distinguish between appearance-based goals, identity-based goals, and performance-based goals. If we try to change our habits by adopting appearance-based or performance-based goals, we will fail, because we don't see ourselves as the person defined in some way by the habit that we want to adopt. But if we first change our identity, or at least identity image, we're far more likely to achieve the habit change we're looking for. Lockie says that if we want to be a more generous person, for example, we have to first define ourselves as such, and then consciously go about performing acts of generosity. Of course, our old identity may be a bit more miserly than our new one would admit to being, so we start off performing as many small acts of generosity as we can. And thus, through performance-based goals, we can slowly build our outer appearance to fit our inner identity. Lockie also gave us six tips to use in this at times difficult process. The first is focus upon cultivating just one new habit. That is, don't try too much too soon. Like trying to change two or more habits at the same time. We probably will not have the time and energy and also will soon give up altogether. The next tip is commit to the new habit for 30 days. Now even though some habits take much longer to establish than others, Lockie says in a month we should notice some progress. Then he says attach the new habit to one that's already established. Now this is kind of like extending a present habit and he uses the example of attaching a short meditation practice to the habit of getting up early in the morning. The fourth tip is plan for problems. Lockie says, because changing conditions will always bring challenges to our routines, 
the best defense is to use the baby step approach I've already described, because that way, if we do get blocked by circumstances, we're still likely to do something rather than do nothing. Being flexible also helps. So then it will not matter if occasionally we slip up in our practice, we'll not blame ourselves. Become accountable is his next tip. That means finding someone to whom you can admit your sins, so as to speak. That will encourage you and counter the negative attitude of guilt or feeling worthless. Finally, he recommends reward progress. Our previous habits came about through being rewarded in some way, so we just follow that time-proven technique. Lockie says it doesn't really matter what reward we choose, so long as it brings some harmless fun to our routine and helps us to stick with it. So that is where our program ended last time. And now, before we continue, let's check our motivation as we usually do. Of course, we'll try to set a bodhicitta motivation, intending this program to become a cause for our enlightenment so we can benefit all beings to the fullest extent. But if that is now too difficult for you, at least think that this program will become a cause for your own swift enlightenment. Thank you. Now the reason we got talking about good and bad habits is the text we are following, Namkar Pell's Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun. We arrived at the point where he describes the practices to follow over a whole lifetime. In the text, these practices are called the five powers, that is, the power of intention, the power of the white seed, the power of remorse, the power of prayer, and the power of acquaintance. The power of intention refers to the determination not to be influenced or driven by the afflictive emotions until one has achieved enlightenment and always be motivated by bodhicitta. Then the power of the white seed refers to preserving the positive potential and insights we generate through positive actions such as generosity, keeping ethics and meditation. Especially we maintain those positive qualities in the service of developing bodhicitta. Then, through the power of remorse, we regret and give up our self-serving attitudes and activities and all the disturbing emotions that come with them, as well as our neglect of others. We spend some time with the power of prayer, but basically in this context, it means that we pray that through our and others' positive potentials, we may all generate, maintain and enhance the mind of bodhicitta. And finally, through the power of acquaintance, we continuously familiarize ourselves through study, contemplation and meditation with positive attitudes and qualities, with the intention that it doesn't matter how long it will take, we will practice to build these qualities until enlightenment comes. Now, this is all very lofty and commendable, but it is not just a matter of saying now we'll act, only act on positive qualities and never on negative qualities. Now, that's a bit unrealistic. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama points out, our negativities are very strong, and most of us are going to have to work for a long time to transform them into positive qualities, especially great and powerful positive qualities. So we need to take a very long view, extending way beyond the, just this lifetime and through to many lifetimes in the future. This view must rest on the firm and lasting conviction that we can actually achieve a state beyond afflictive emotions and suffering. If we adopt the belief that it is impossible to rid the mind of negativities, we doom ourselves to eternal damnation. For if the negativities are part of the mind, how can we ever be free of anger, attachment, ignorance, 
and the many other afflictions that arise from these three. But from a Buddhist perspective, these afflictions are not part of the mind. They are adventitious, arising only from a mistaken understanding, and so can be removed. We only have to work steadily at writing our understanding and, and insight and developing positive qualities and the negativities will diminish and calm down. Then, when we can finally meditate on and realize emptiness, we will be completely liberated from them forever. But now we need to start somewhere. And so last week we took in the explanations and practical advice of Paul Lockie on how to begin developing good habits. This may give us a good basis on which to practice the power of acquaintance, which, as we've said, essentially includes familiarizing ourselves with positive emotions. Now, Dr. Barbara Fredrickson is a keen and distinguished professor at the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. She is also the director of the Positive Emotions and Psychophysiology Laboratory and the president of the International Positive Psychology Association. She's been researching positive emotions and their benefits for decades, and it seems appropriate to include a summary of her work at this point, just so we can understand how positive emotions can benefit both our present and our ongoing psychology. The summary comes from an article by Dr. Mariana Pogosayan on positive emotions and well-being on the website www.psychologytoday.com. Dr. Pogosayan has this to say, in the decades following World War II, psychology as a science made notable strides in diagnosing and treating pathologies. While the contribution of psychological research on mental illness and adversity has enriched our understanding of the causes of human suffering, recent years have seen a resurgence of interest in the other side of the human experience, flourishing. What factors contribute to human flourishing? What makes a good life? As a branch of psychology, Positive psychology is the scientific study of positive human functioning. In other words, the exploration of the circumstances and conditions that enable individuals and communities to thrive. Among the three main concerns of positive psychology are positive emotions, sometimes referred to as the tiny engines of positive psychology, positive individual traits, for example compassion, optimism, resilience, and positive institutions that's families, social relationships, communities, and so on. By examining the mechanisms behind these three pillars, the far-reaching ripples of positive emotions, the health effects of meaningful social connections, the protective properties of our strengths and virtues, we can take an important step towards understanding our well-being. Dr. Barbara Fredrickson has been researching positive emotions for decades. Her work, along with the research of her colleagues, has shed light on how and why positive emotions are good for us. In particular, how despite their fleeting and subtle nature, the benefits of positive emotions echo long after their momentary pleasures have dimmed. Happiness makes up in height for what it lacks in length, Robert Frost once noted. As Fredrickson's broaden and build theory posits, micro-moments of positivity accumulate over time and put people on a trajectory of growth by broadening their awareness and building their resources for survival. The wealth of benefits of positive emotions is well documented. They improve physical health. They foster trust and compassion. They buffer against depressive symptoms and help people recover from stress. 
They can even undo the undesirable effects of negative emotions. With frequent experience and expression of positive emotions comes resilience and resourcefulness. Moreover, positive emotions foster better social connectedness. How can we enrich our lives with more positive emotions, without regular lottery wins and frequent honeymoons? Opportunities, it appears, abound as far and as near the eye can see, taking a walk in nature, meditating, being open and warm-hearted, living mindfully, to human kindness as much as to the taste of melting chocolate on the tongue. Then there are our social connections, which, according to Fredrickson's research, can become gold mines of positive emotions. In fact, merely reflecting on how attuned we feel with our daily interactions has been linked with an increase in the experience of positive emotions. One of the reasons behind the beneficial power of our connections lies in their ability to build positivity resonance. When you share a smile or laugh with someone face to face, a discernible synchrony emerges between you as your gestures and biochemistries, even your respective neural firings, come to mirror each other, writes Fredrickson. It's micro-moments like these in which a wave of good feeling rolls through two brains and bodies at once that build your capacity to empathize as well as to improve your health. Positivity resonance, according to Fredrickson, can occur between anyone, from a close friend to a stranger behind you in the grocery line. Perhaps more encouraging, love, a key ingredient of positivity resonance, the most generative and consequential of all positive emotions, the driving force behind the health benefits of positive emotions, need not be confined to the embrace of a soulmate. It can, Fredrickson observes, bloom any time people connect over shared positive emotions. Research has shown that the difference between people who are flourishing and those who aren't lies in the magnitude of positive emotions they are able to self-generate from everyday pleasant activities, such as social interactions, learning and helping others. Thus, according to positive psychology, what lies behind a good life, it seems, are not occasional grandiose gifts of fate, rather the ability to use our strengths and virtues for a purpose greater than ourselves, and a steady diet of micro-moments of positivity, however fleeting, however modest, that weave well-being from the hum of ordinary days. The best part is that occasions for such moments are much more prevalent than we might think. Dr. Mogosayan then presents some questions to Dr. Fredrickson, first asking, what is the role of positive emotions for our well-being? Dr. Fredrickson replies, our day-to-day -day positive emotions function as nutrients for our overall well-being. Today's positive emotions do not simply exemplify today's well-being. They also help to create next month's increases in well-being. Dr. Mogosayan then asks, Why is gratitude important? Says Dr. Fredrickson, Gratitude is one of the easiest positive emotions to conjure up out of thin air. Simply ask yourself, which aspects of my current situation might I consider a gift to be cherished? And then allow yourself some time to cherish. Then the next question is, how is love defined in positive psychology? And the reply, it's important to consider love in its smallest forms, and not only for its role in romance and marriage. In my book, Love 2.0, I define love as any moment in which positive emotions are shared between and among people, be it loved ones, friends, 
co-workers or even strangers. These moments in which positivity resonates interpersonally appear to be especially potent nutrients for growth and well-being. What is loving-kindness meditation, that's LKM, and what benefits does it have, asked Dr. Mogerson. Dr. Fredrickson answers, For more than a decade, my collaborators and I have studied an ancient meditation practice called loving-kindness meditation, which we at times abbreviate as LKM. We find that LKM helps people to self-generate more positive emotions in daily life, and these emotions in turn build people's resources and resilience, even their physical health, all of which improve their long-term well-being. Then we have the question, how is resilience acquired? Our research reveals that one way that resilience is acquired is through daily experiences of positive emotions, says Dr. Fredrickson. Those among us who are more resilient experience more day-to-day positive emotions and use these feelings to deal with the adversity and hassles we all face. In addition, the steady diet of positive emotions over time nourishes gains in resilience. Then a question about making happiness a main driver in our life. Dr. Mogosan asks, what does it mean to prioritize happiness? That is, how can we increase positive emotions in our lives? Says Dr. Fredrickson, everyone is busy these days, so much so that we can become too focused on our to-do list. Prioritizing positivity means we also have a to-feel list and scheduling in time for activities that you know to be reliable elicitors of your own positive emotions. For me, it's spending time with a friend, walking in nature, or creating a new recipe. And then the last question is, why are positive social connections considered a health behavior, and how can we increase their recurrence? Dr. Fredrickson answers like this, when we think of positive health behaviors, being physically active and eating our vegetables leaps to mind. Positive social connections appear to be every bit as important to your long-term physical health. Here I mean old-fashioned real-time connections, face-to-face and voice-to-voice. We can increase these not only by prioritizing enjoyable activities with our families and friends, but also by simply smiling and making eye contact with a clerk who helps you at the store or the person sitting near you on your commute. These simple micro-moments of connection are surprisingly powerful. So, obviously, if we can make a determination to practice positive emotions in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, we will be doing ourselves and those we connect with a huge favor. Even the checkout operator we deal with at the supermarket will get benefit from such a practice. So, practice positive emotions. But what do we do when their opposites, the negative emotions, come to visit, usually unannounced and uninvited and often unwanted? It's not that we can serve them a restraining order, go away and never come back again. The Western successor to the great Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedha, has an answer in an article titled Emotional Habits on the website buddhismnow.com. He mentions Amaravati, which is the monastery he founded in the Chiltern Hills in southeast England. And this is what he says. I've been here at Amaravati for 15 years. We have a nice temple with cloisters now and somebody has donated funds for a very nice kuti, the nicest kuti I've ever had. And one may may become attached to Amaravati or ideas about Amaravati or the Sangha to monasticism or Buddhism to being a good Buddhist monk or to the Theravada tradition 
to the Thai forest tradition, to establishing Buddhism in the West. All these things are very good and one gets praised for them. People sometimes say, isn't it wonderful what you've done? You've established monasticism in the West. I get a lot of these kinds of messages. But one has to be careful not to start attaching to these things and suffering when one doesn't get the compliments or when the monks and nuns start disrobing and people start finding fault with you. When one responds to praise and blame, success and failure, these are the signs of attachment. This is where I've made a strong determination. In my practice, the priority is always towards this purity, never towards any worldly thing, not towards the monastic life, towards Buddhism, individual monks or nuns, orders of monks and nuns, Buddhism in the West, Buddhism in the East, Buddhism in the North or Buddhism in the South. Even if I am successful at these things, even if I do establish Buddhism permanently for the next thousand years in Europe, the priority can only be to realize Nirvana, to cross over the sea of suffering. We've made this temple at Amaravati so sturdy it'll last a thousand years. Buddhism may not survive, but the temple will. The architect said 20 elephants could dance on the roof of that temple and it would not cave in. But to realize Nibbana is the whole purpose of ordaining as a monk or nun. This has always meant a lot to me. I could see that it might be sometimes easier to build temples than to practice and to keep that practice going until you really know so it's not theoretical. Each one of us has this opportunity to know this for ourselves. And that's the only way we can be liberated, through knowing it for ourselves, not through anyone else's understanding. I now see the emotional habits that one has as vipaka karma. That's the result of karma. If I accept whatever emotions come up, let them be in consciousness and then let them out, they will be liberated from their prison. I find this a skillful way of looking at it. Even after years of moral conduct and strict practice, it's surprising what emotions still come into consciousness. But in terms of practice, whatever comes, you don't make any problems out of it. You just recognize the opportunity to liberate this wretched creature or this emotion from its prison. The attitude is vipaka karma, resultant karma. When the conditions ripen, the result becomes conscious. The things that ripen, that come up into consciousness, just let them be conscious and liberate them by letting them go. Let them be what they are and they will naturally move away. With awareness, you've opened the door to the deathless. You're liberating those wretched conditions from their misery. The doors to the deathless are open. That's mindfulness. We talk about the doors to the deathless, but it's not something out there, something remote or hidden. The Buddha pointed to this mindfulness. This is the path to the deathless. You can see that every moment of your life you have this. This is your heritage, your opportunity. And so even if you forget about it or don't want to do it right now, there will be a point in your life when you will want to do it. Even if you're not ready for the unconditioned experience, for realization, you will be at some time. You'll get fed up with the suffering that you create through ignorance and attachment. This seems to be a time when this kind of teaching is becoming increasingly appreciated. It's not just through the Buddhist convention, but in many ways. It's as if this kind of practice is being made available to people, or maybe it's the time of awakening because of the seemingly unsolvable problems and the mess that we've created through our greed, hatred and delusion. 
the population pressures of this age, the pollution, all the wars and weaponry and the materialism, all this has been done through what? Through desire and attachment to desire. So much of our intelligence has been used for creating horrible weapons, smart bombs that aren't so smart, and the problems of human beings and all planetary creatures at this time on this earth, and yet there is this potential for enlightenment, for realization. If we contemplate in the terms of just being one human individual at this time, we can see that what we learn through awareness is something very ordinary and unimpressive. It's not as if we light up with flames shooting out of our heads and we have extravagant experiences. It's very subtle. No one would ever know. Nothing shows. There's nothing spectacular about paying attention. This expansive, intuitive listening, attentive listening, intuitive awareness. It's nothing fantastic, nothing to write home about. That's why it's overlooked, why people don't notice. They're looking for something spectacular, some kind of mystical experience where you kind of merge with the ultimate in a union of bliss. That's what we'd like, isn't it? Sometimes you have moments like that where you feel as though you're in union with the ultimate and with nature and with everything. But that kind of feeling becomes a memory. And then you want to have it again. You get attached to the memory of it. You're always looking for something through a memory rather than trusting in the very simple ability we have right now of just paying attention. This is humbling. It isn't like an achievement that we can exhibit for the world to see. Worldly people think it's not worth anything. All these ways of trying to get you to meditate often come with promises that you'll look younger, you'll be able to make more money, your relationships will improve, you'll be successful, you'll be happy, your diseases will be cured. These things sell meditation. We're promised all kinds of good things as a reward for doing it. It's not that those things never happen. It's not that the reverse happens and you become poorer and sicker through meditation. But that isn't the point. It's the goodies that often stimulates the desire to meditate. But I'm referring to the ultimate purpose of meditation, the realization of truth. To many people, if meditation doesn't promise a lot of good things, then it's not worth anything. In terms of realizing the way of non-suffering, however, and a fearlessness that comes through that, then that is what is said to be the highest happiness. To be fearless and to understand the truth is its own reward. You don't need anything more than that. You don't need to have lots of money or good health or anything else. The mind is not just some kind of thing in the skull. Awareness brings a sense of expansion, of being connected, of being unlimited, infinite, immeasurable. It's not fixed on just one object, is it? It's open and receptive. It's wide. It's not attached to just one little thing. That is what we call intuitive awareness. Whatever pleasant, unpleasant, miserable emotions or boring thoughts come, just welcome them. You're opening the doors of the prison to liberate them rather than thinking you don't want to have these stupid thoughts or feelings. Such is the practice and the words of Ajahn Sumedho of the Thai forest tradition. And that is where we're going to have to leave the discussion today. I hope it will give you something to mull over and even practice in the coming week. Thanks for joining the program. But before we leave, let's create a micro-moment of positivity with a dedication of the program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings. Many thanks, and I hope you'll be with us again next week. But for now, goodbye.
For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.